and just um, because I really hadn't had the opportunity uh, since the day our family joined this last time here at Fisherville. Brian made a statement when we came forward that I did not like him. Does anybody remember that when I first met him? That was true. And here's why. Obviously, I didn't know him personally, um, but I thought, ah, young, strapping fellow like himself, coming from Alabama, football, and uh, he's going to teach us all how to preach and do all this stuff. You know, just that young, immature thinking that I had. And uh, man, I tell you what, absolutely fell in love with this guy. And uh, it's been an honor to have you as a professor, a friend, and a pastor co-labor in the gospel. It really is an honor, and I thank God dearly for you. Let's read. Beginning in verse 1 of, well, I need to get to the right. Look at Peter, don't I? Chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 10. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it that by it you may grow up in salvation if indeed you have tasted that the lord is good as you come to him a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of god chosen and precious you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's, or sorry, his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father of all grace, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, O God, for this assembly tonight. We pray that you would accomplish what you so desire in our lives for the glory and fame of your Son in us. And it's his name we pray. Amen. So as we consider this passage from the pen of the Apostle Peter, I would like for us to think about a few key words, words uh, in our text concerning the worth and dignity of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the person of our Savior. And you know we could spend easily spend all night uh, giving passage after passage and personal experiences we have had with the Christ. 
and concerning his worth as those who are redeemed, as those who have been made born again, as those who are, as Peter even says here, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And it would be right for us to do that, wouldn't it? We could spend all evening doing that. It would be proper. It would be praiseworthy. Especially since we, the chosen race that Peter mentions here, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially since we are told to proclaim the excellencies of him. Think about that for just a moment. The proclamation of the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so it's right for God's people to proclaim his excellencies. It's right for us to declare his dignity, his worth, his value, the perfections of his being, if you will, he who is the first and best of beings, he who is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. He's full of wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And through whom is this international kingdom of priests and holy nation, a people for God's own possession, made possible? And through whom are we to declare God's excellencies? It's through Jesus our Lord, isn't it? We read in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2 verse 10, that we have been filled in Him. Filled. Not just being given a little, but it says we are full. We are filled in Him. In Christ, the divine fullness is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are filled in Him. So what does that mean? It means everything that we have need of is in Christ. And if we are united to Christ, then we have everything that we essentially need. To proclaim the excellencies of God in the Son. Everything we have need of. In order to rightly declare, to celebrate the perfections of God's being is in our union with Jesus. And one of the reasons that Peter gives in our passage <clears throat> for this appreciation of the value, uh, sufficiency, and of the preciousness is because of what he further states in chapter 2, verse 10, isn't it? Look there with me. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen, it's only because of the cornerstone, that which is chosen, that which is precious, the Lord Jesus Christ, the highest privilege in the universe is granted to us, undeserving sinners. The receiving of God's mercy. To have the God of all creation to call us His people. That we would be united to His Son. He who is chosen and precious of God. And then to have God look at us who are clothed in the righteousness of His Son and say, you are precious to me. 
And obviously, in turn, we would say, oh, yes, you are precious to us. We cherish you. We adore you. We love you. We praise you. We worship you because of who you are. Yes, because of what you did, but essentially because of who you are. You are God. And you have done this great and awesome thing in me, and I didn't deserve it. Was God obligated to do this? Was God obligated to extend his mercy to us? Was he obligated to make us his people? Well, of course not. He wasn't obligated to make people who were dead in their trespasses and sins alive in the sun. He wasn't obligated to make those who were following the course of this world like we all were now walk heavenward. He wasn't obligated to do that, was he? He wasn't obligated to make those who were disobedient, who lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and the mind, who by their very nature were children of wrath. He wasn't obligated to make us obedient to the gospel and to clothe us in the righteousness of his son. So what changed all of this? Well, that's what Peter says here in verse 10, isn't it? It's the mercy of God. The mercy of God changed all of this. It's what Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, God being rich in mercy... along with his great love with which he loved us, that he made us alive together with Christ. Isn't mercy wonderful? Mercy's wonderful. That God in his holiness would withhold from us those who are desperately sinful what we actually deserve. Namely, his just judgment. But you know what's even more wonderful? Not only that God would withhold from us his just judgment, that is what we actually deserve, as wonderful as that is, but that he would actually make us alive together with Christ. It's one thing for God to withhold his judgment from us, but another thing to call us his children, to unite us in his son. You see, mercy in one form or another is basically extended to all people, isn't it? Generally speaking. And we would put this under the category of God's common grace. Everyone in some way or another has experienced God's mercy, believers and unbelievers alike. But when the text tells us that we are made alive together with Christ and that we've received mercy and that we were made as people, we're not talking about common grace here, are we? We're talking about something else. We're talking about God's special saving grace. And that grace being bestowed upon all who are appointed to eternal life in the Son. And so as we consider the worth of the Savior, 
the value, the sufficiency, the preciousness of the excellencies of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to do so tonight by considering two points. The preciousness, sorry, we're going to do so by considering the preciousness of the Son in two ways. First, by considering Jesus in and of himself as being precious. And then secondly, that believers are to prize him are to value Him, are to cherish Him as precious for themselves. It's more than just lip service. It's more than just saying, Jesus is valuable, He's cherished, He's beautiful, wonderful, precious, but it's another thing for us to live and walk in that, isn't it? So hopefully tonight we're going to examine both of those, and Lord willing, uh, by the power of His gospel and grace uh, will seek to be more conformed to, I think, what Peter is calling us here in his book. And so just like everything that Peter's already been saying in passages prior to the one that we're looking here tonight, namely our being born again to a living hope, and now we, hope-filled believers, those who have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, We are to imitate our Lord, right? We're to imitate Him in His holiness. And our passage tonight, just this theologically correct and beautiful, he uh, says that earlier he continues this. He continues these wonderful theological ideas. And there are several ways in which we can approach this passage. And what I mean by that is that there's several different ways we can structure an exposition of chapter 2, namely... Verses 4 through 7, which is what we're going to look at tonight. But for this study tonight, I have chosen to begin with what it says about Jesus and then what it says about those who are united to him. Okay? So if I could, wives, can I pick on you for just a moment? Everybody's in agreement. Well, husbands, I guess it's sort of, I'm going to be picking on you as well, at least for the illustration anyway. Uh, What if your husband's wives say to you, I love you and I cherish you because of all the work you do. I love you and I cherish you because of all the work you do. How would you want to respond to that? You don't have to answer me. Just keep your thoughts to yourself. How would you respond if your husband said, I love you and cherish you because you clean the house, you care for the children, you wash the clothes, you make the supper, so on and so forth. I love you because of that. And of course, we would obviously include there taking care of us, husbands, men, because any husband would have a brain, would be, should be willing to admit that, right? <clears throat> but in all seriousness, how would you respond? Well, chances are you probably wouldn't respond very positively. To hear your husband say that the reason he loves you is because of what you did or the work that you continue to do around the house rather than actually loving you as a person, as an image bearer made in God's image, as his bride for your worth and cherishes the relationship that you both share together, and treasured together, you probably wouldn't feel very appreciated, right? 
So here's the point. The point is, shouldn't believers, shouldn't believers guard themselves against the error of exalting the work of Christ above the person of Christ? In other words, isn't the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice traced to the essential dignity of his person? Is it the personal preciousness of Jesus that which imparts a sense of preciousness to the work he accomplished for us on the cross? Don't misunderstand me. Jesus' sacrificial work most assuredly and beautifully illustrates the grace and love that he has towards sinners. But it's a work that owes all of what was accomplished to the value of the person. To the value of the person. So here's a question for you. To what advantage is our concentration on the cross of Christ if the person who went to the cross for us is not esteemed quite like Scripture portrays him to be? What if I only boast in what was accomplished for me, the work that was done on my behalf, but I never really cherished the person? There's not intimacy there between me and Jesus. There's no real thriving, oh, I can't wait to see you in the morning kind of relationship. I love reading Octavius Winslow. He summarizes this well in this lengthy statement, so bear with me. He says, hesitate not then to give full credence to all the glorious truths of the gospel and to place the entire weight of your soul upon the atonement of Jesus and to believe that though sinner you are, be it very chief, be it the very chief, such is the divine worth and sovereign efficacy efficacy of his sacrifice. You will, you must, you should be saved to the uttermost because your creator is your savior and your judge is your justifier. But this personal representation of the Lord Jesus involves also the preciousness of his manhood, his personal alliance with our nature, his condescending stoop to our humanity is not the least enduring feature to the heart of his believing saints. We have claimed for the Son of God absolute deity. We now claim for him perfect humanity, flesh, real and substantial, yet holy and harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners. Was he made a humanity identical with his people in all but its original and actual sinfulness? He knew no sin, and yet, what a sin-bearer was he. All the transgressions of his lack met upon him, but he could only bear sin. As he himself was essentially free from its taint, had there been the remotest breath of pollution adhering to him, had one drop of the moral virus circulated through his veins, it would have been rendered him utterly and forever incapable of presenting to the justice of God an atonement for sin. He then would have needed, like the high priest of old, to have offered first for sins of himself and then for the people. 
And so how precious then, beloved, is our Lord Jesus. So with that, let's look at our first point. That Jesus in and of himself is precious. That Jesus in and of himself is intrinsically precious. So back to another question, similar to the one I asked a little while ago. Because tonight we're considering the preciousness of our Lord. Is it possible for believers to make the cross and all that was accomplished for us in Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection, a source of idolatry? Think about that for a moment. And here's what I mean by that. Whenever we elevate the work of Christ above the person of Christ, and we place too much emphasis on the people for whom he died rather than the person who died and was raised again. Is that idolatrous? For instance, and I think John Piper hits on this a little bit in his book, uh, The Gospel, uh, God is the Gospel. If we are not captured by the personal preciousness of Jesus, which imparts a sense of preciousness to the work he accomplished for us on the cross, could we, as imperfect people, actually be making more of ourselves and our worth because God put Jesus forward for us rather than making it about Jesus and the essential dignity of his person? I think we can. And I think we have to be on guard Not to say that we as image bearers are not valuable because we are. Every human life is valuable as image bearers of God. Nor am I saying that the cross and what Christ achieved for us is not valuable because it is valuable. (laughs) What does Paul say? He says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, he says, We are to boast in what? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not saying it's not valuable. Here's what I'm getting at. We praise Him at church, but we neglect Him in the home. We praise Him in the assembly, but we have no intimate relationship with Him, as I referred to a moment ago. We dot theological I's and we cross our theological T's and our circles of theological thought, but no personal intimacy with the Savior. So I'm not saying that the cross and what Christ achieved is not valuable because it is. But again, are we elevating what was accomplished above the person? So study God. Study God in Christ, in Christ on the cross, Winslow further adds. Consider the wonder that was met there. Be amazed by God's love who put His Son forward as our propitiation. Marvel at the glory in it, the glory that gathers round it, the streams of blessing that flow from it. 
the deep refreshment it brings to every single thirsty soul who comes to him and drinks and has flowing from every regenerate heart rivers of living water. Oh, boast in the cross. Boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ because this is the happy experience of all who look at Jesus and live, who look at Jesus and love, who look to Jesus and seek to obey Him with our whole hearts, who look to Jesus and embrace the blessed hope of eternal life with which God, who never lies, promises. Before the ages began. So don't misunderstand me. Look, look to Jesus on the cross. Celebrate it. Celebrate the love. Celebrate the cost. Celebrate the forgiveness that was bought by Jesus as we even sung this morning. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. So boast in the cross, yes. Boast in the cross. But listen, we must only do so insofar as we understand that the finished work of Christ owes all of what was accomplished to the value of his person. What does our text say in verses 4 and 6? Look with me. Verses 4 and 6, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. The text clearly states that treasuring Christ is God's response, and therefore it should be our response, right? As a matter of fact, treasuring Christ the way God does is the only way we can ever begin to mature. Look at what he states here in verse 2. So as to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus. What he says in verse 2, and he connects that to verse 5, how we are to grow up into salvation, to mature, and then offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through the preciousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom we are united with by faith. But this is not all that Peter mentions. Not only are we to consider Jesus in and of himself, who is intrinsically precious, but we are, we are actually to prize him ourselves as that which is precious. Not just give lip service, but say, yes, I am living my life for the glory of Christ. I'm serving Him. I'm cherishing Him. I value Him. He is, he is worth it. We're not trying to pay Him back. We just love Him because we can't help ourselves. He did what we could not do. He served us and taught us what it meant to serve. You know, I really believe that if Jesus was in a crowd, well, if Jesus was walking with his disciples, that you and I wouldn't be able to pick him out. I think the only way we would really know who he was without talking to him is 
watching the way he served. He was a servant. And he taught us how to serve unto the gospel. And we serve like he served because we love him. So let's consider the second point here. That we prize Jesus as being that which is precious. So now, after having Peter, uh, after Jesus is pronounced by God through the pen of the Apostle Paul as that which is chosen and precious, a chosen and precious cornerstone, Peter now draws the conclusion that he is also to us, the believer, as well. You know, it's one thing to say that Jesus is precious, but it's another to live as if he is the treasure of your life. Look at verses 6 and 7. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. You know, I once asked a friend um, one Sunday after church. He lived in the same apartment building as we did. And so on one Sunday afternoon, I asked him how he and his family and worship was uh, that morning. And here's what he said to me. He said, Brother, all I can say is that I'm not loving and cherishing Jesus as I ought. Now, i got to be honest with you. Uh, I thought his comment at the time um, was nothing more than rehearsed um, pious jargon. Uh, It's probably wrong for me to think that way, but that was my thinking at the time. But you know something? Regardless of the genuineness of this individual, I thought more and more about what he said. And uh, I come to the conclusion that, you know, he's exactly right. He is absolutely right because doesn't it really boil down to this? I mean, really, essentially, it boils down to this that we genuinely grow deeper in our love for our Savior. That we grow up into salvation, as is mentioned there in verse 2. So think about it. If believers share in the chosen and precious status of the cornerstone, the living stone, in whom we, like living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ in verse 5, then choosing what our Heavenly Father chooses, what He deems as precious, means that we have, as the allurement of our affections, the person of the Lord Jesus. What God desires and what we desire ought to mesh and mold together really well, especially if we are united in the Son, the one in whom He deems precious, valuable, cherishes, is of dignity, of greatest dignity. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. You can turn there if you wish. Look at verses 7 through 11 or read those. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, you know these verses well, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that derives from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Sunday school this morning, we were talking about Hebrews chapter 2. And while examining Hebrews chapter 2, we stopped at verse 1 for a moment, which says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. And you can spend a lot of time there um, and what the author of Hebrews is saying. And as we discuss this, we observe, you know what, there are many things, voices and all kinds of things in our culture today that demand our attention, right? And so we have to be really careful. We have to pay much closer attention, lest we drift away, because of all the voices that demand our attention, demand our time. And I was thinking, as I I was thinking, what's a person to do here? How, How are we really to guard ourselves? I mean, everywhere you turn, something's calling for our attention. In the home, in the workforce, in the community, even in the church. Something, someone's always calling out. Some of it is honorable, some of it is not. And so we have to be careful. We have to pay attention. And I think what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, I think he's hitting on something here, especially verse 7 and 8. He says, but whatever gain I had... Listen, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he goes on to say, I count everything as loss. All right, Paul, what are you saying here? Look what John Piper says about this. This has stuck with me for a long time. He said, if, if when you become a Christian, you write a big red loss, across everything in this world except Christ. Then when Christ calls you to forfeit some of those things, it's not strange or unexpected. I've written loss on everything, so when it's gone, I've already written it off. I've already lost it. The pain and the sorrow, it, it may be great, he adds. The tears may be many, as they were for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we will be prepared. We will know that the value of Christ surpasses all things the world could ever offer, and that in losing them, we gain more of Christ. I mean, well said. That's what Paul's saying. I write loss on everything that I may gain Christ. I've written it off, it's gone. Or if it's not gone, when it becomes missing, it's okay, I'm prepared for it. And so whenever the gospel call came to us, we we counted the cost, didn't we? 
counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And we, through the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit in our regenerated hearts, we said, yes, we, at that point, it was resolved in our hearts to see Jesus as that which is the surpassing worth. But you see, Paul here, whenever he wrote this, he wasn't just talking about something that had happened in the past. He's still talking about it, isn't he? Paul's still writing about it. He's still living it out. He's willing to undergo suffering for it and is making it his greatest concern in life, even while he faces the uncertainty of death. So the question, the question I'm personally asking Paul is, Paul, how? How does one remain faithful? How does one remain faithful to the long-term call of obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ that does not extinguish over time? How does one remain faithful to the long-term call of obedience that does not falter when faced with burdensome, overwhelming pressures that we do not seem to have any control over? Paul, how do I do this? This is what I want to know. I'm not just curious. I don't want to know just so that I can regurgitate information to people who are going through the same types of similar issues and questions in their life. I want to know for me. I want to know for me. I want to know for my own personal joy. I want to know for my own gospel-centered decision-making, sin-crushing, if you will, life of obedience where I am counting everything as loss. Follow my Lord in obedience and still have and rejoice in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When everything's been stripped from me, And I don't understand. I want to know. It's not about lip service, is it? I mean, we really want to know. All of us want to know. Every one of us have been here. Maybe even tonight, many of us are here. Maybe you're going through this season of life. And you know the call, the call from God is that we would abandon our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can wholeheartedly live for Him and serve Him. We don't understand, but God, you're sovereign. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to bring glory to you in my life. So Paul, we want to know. God, we want to know. We want to know how to treasure Christ and not the sin in our lives. We want to know how to treasure Christ instead of what we want to say whenever we are angry. We want to know how to treasure Christ instead of having our own way and complaining whenever we don't get our way. We want to know how to come gladly before you in corporate worship instead of complaining about everything that goes on before we gather for worship. Anybody have any crazy Sunday mornings? Man, I do. And it's not because of her. She, I mean, she's great. It's me. 
Oh, she puts up with me. I married in over my head. Amen? God is good. That's all I can say. His grace is sufficient. But you know what? We do have an answer. We want to know, but we've got an answer, don't we? <laughs> the answer, obviously, is to write loss on everything except Jesus. And we want to press on to make him our own because Christ has made us his own. We want to forget what lies behind and strain forward for what lies ahead. We want to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so tonight we desire or should desire to heed the words of Peter in prizing Jesus above all things. Prizing the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ above all things. Why? Because he is precious. He is precious. And so it may be that tonight, you know what? Some of us may need to renew our, renew our love for Christ. And here's the awesome thing about the God we serve. That he is a gracious, loving God. And that he delights in attending to the needs of his children's souls. Isn't that awesome? We are not alone. He is not silent. He's our Heavenly Father. He's the God of all grace. He's our Heavenly Father. Will you pray with me tonight?